Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. This is Tommy Vitor. Ben Rhodes. Ben Rhodes in the studio. In the studio, as always. Ben, holy hell, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. So we're going to start with some updates out of Venezuela and Libya. Then we want to talk about an armed and dangerous beluga whale found in the North Sea. Then Trump is reportedly planning to designate the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization. There's some good news out of Spain. There's the ongoing disaster that is Gitmo. And then finally, the Washington Post, Liz Sly, calls in from Beirut to discuss the emergence of a new video from ISIS chief Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. So buckle up, worldos. we got a lot of show. That's a, that's a lot. So let's start with Venezuela because there are some really scary updates happening today. Opposition leader slash, you know, maybe president, whatever you want to call him, Juan Guaido, appeared in an event on a military base today with a bunch of soldiers, and he called on citizens to rise up against Maduro. Uh, that led to a series of protests and armed clashes in a bunch of places across the country, including at Maduro's presidential palace. There's some really, you know, scary videos on Twitter where you can see Maduro's goons, like, literally driving over protesters. You can see huge crowds running from gunfire. Interestingly, another opposition leader named Leopoldo Lopez, who had been house arrest for a long time, uh, appeared beside Guaido. So anyway, Ben, this is getting pretty dicey. It's scary. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's another one of these times where we have to step back and consider, really, there's kind of two questions, Tommy. There's this question of essentially, you know, who would you like to see emerge and how would you like to see Venezuela governed and, and get out of this hole? And I think we can all feel like Maduro has failed the Venezuelan people, that Maduro mm-hmm. doesn't have the interests of the Venezuelan people at heart, totally. does not have democratic legitimacy, governs in authoritarian ways, uh, clearly is willing to utilize violence as necessary to hold him to power. And yet at the same time, the second question is, well, what do you do about that? And and I continue to be worried that everything that, that this administration is doing, from Donald Trump to Mike Pence to Elliot Abrams and John Bolton. To Colonel Rubio. To, to, to Private Rubio. Private Rubio. Are, are just are making the situation worse for the Venezuelan people. Yeah. And the, your policy should be about making things better, not worse. And again, they've tried the recognition of the opposition. They've tried to do the broad sanctions to tank the economy. They've tried to force in foreign assistance. And now they're clearly trying some play to more overtly appeal to the military to come to Guaido, which hasn't happened yet. And at every one of those turns, things have gotten worse, uh, not better. And the situation's gotten more polarized. And uh, the question is both, can you dislodge Maduro this way? or not. And and thus far, they have not been able to, and the military stuck by him. And he's actually been able to essentially play the card that this is a foreign directed, you know, coup against me. And then also, like, even if you do get him out, like, how do you put this place back together when you've polarized the society so much? And again, both the tactics that they're using, and the people who are in charge. I mean, I, 
to have Elliot Abrams, the guy who was responsible for these policies that led to the massacre of civilians in Central America, who was responsible for a regime change policy in Iraq, to put him in charge of your regime change policy in Venezuela, mm-hmm. sends a message about how we look at this and, and who we trust to do this. And and I'm just worried that whether you think Maduro should be gone or not, this is not an approach that is helping the Venezuelan people. Yeah, I and mean, the personnel thing you mentioned is no small piece of this. It's De- not. Dexter Filkins has a great profile out of John Bolton in The New Yorker this week, and he's talking to Bolton about why he suddenly cares about Latin America, because it's not really his specialty. And he talks about how there's now Russians in Venezuela, and he's talking about Cuban influence. I mean, the only surprise was he didn't talk about the Soviet Union. It's such a Cold War yeah. mentality. And like lost in all of this conversation about the political dynamic and the violence is that the Venezuelan people are suffering. I imagine the situation has gotten exponentially worse yeah. over the last several months. Yeah. I, I personally haven't seen any significant humanitarian steps taken to help them. Have you? No. And if you go back to kind of pre-recognition of Guaido, if you made the whole push of the policy focused on finding ways to improve the life of the Venezuelan people and to address the humanitarian crisis while finding some way to try to negotiate some transition to a different government, I just think we'd be in a better place now. I, you know, I can't guarantee that, that you'd, you'd have dislodged Maduro, but this is breaking the country apart. And, and like, even if, you know, if you got Elliot Abrams flying down on military jets carrying foreign aid and God knows what else yeah, the, yeah. those military jets are carrying, um, we've seen that people <clears throat> like Elliot Abrams are willing to use covert authorities to try to sponsor coups. And, and like, that's, Number one, failing thus far, and the Cubans and Maduro and all these and the Russians are pretty good at playing this game. They're pretty good at at the kind of life or death struggle. So they could hold on, and then then where are we? At the same time, again, even if you sponsor the coup that Elliot Abrams may be trying to sponsor, or even if you don't think it's a coup because of the constitutional mm-hmm. hook for um, Guaido. Guaido to be in power, this place is going to be broken to pieces, and you're going to have kind of civil violence, if not a civil war, because Maduro is arming all these people. And I just... I think we really need to be scrutinizing more whether this constant escalation makes sense. And I honestly believe that the Trump administration has been pushing Guaido to do all these steps, you know, that we're the strongest power in the hemisphere and and we're pushing them and we're raising their expectations. I mean, Mike Pence, you know, tweeting today, we are with you. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Or does that mean we're going to invade? I mean, yeah. what, you know, so the Venezuelan opposition is getting their expectations raised, you know, and I'll put ourselves on the hook here because it reminds me a bit of Syria where, you know, we call for Assad to go. We recognize the opposition. They get their hopes up. You know, we're providing them some support and we, we didn't remove Assad ourselves. This looks eerily similar to that situation. And, I worry that it's just going to get worse for the people in the middle of it. Yeah, uh, I agree. People. I mean, look, in, in, next topic is another country that was broken apart by the international community that the U.S. is now making worse, which is Libya. So, And just one more thing. Yeah, on yeah the, please. The Russia piece, the Cuba policy they've taken is basically just inviting Russia back into Cuba. Right. I'll give you like one example. Like the, They need to rebuild the airport in Havana. The Cubans do. And they, I think we're trending towards doing that with a European company. But now, like, because of the way our sanctions are making this more complicated for Western companies, like, they'll probably go to a Russian company. You know, the Russians and the Chinese are 
in undeniably going to gain much more influence in Cuba because of what they're doing and removing the U.S. opening. So if Bolton says he's worried about Russian influence in Latin America, he's inviting Putin into Cuba 90 miles from Florida because he's shutting the U.S. out. So mm-hmm. their policies are stupid on top of everything else. Yeah. They, like, they don't even achieve the objectives that they set out for them. No, no. So we talked about Libya like two weeks ago, yeah. but I want to dig yeah. in for a minute because you literally predicted this, Ben. I actually, yeah. There's, there, a, there, there's a yeah, similar... those go back and check the record on this Yo, one. I yeah. mean, yeah. you did. Like Trump inserted himself into, and the US, into the middle of a civil war in Libya. And so to catch you guys up, there's a Libyan warlord named Khalifa Haftar who was attacking Libya's capital, Tripoli. Haftar was part of Gaddafi's army in the 60s and 70s and became a senior guy in the 80s until he turned against Gaddafi in an unsuccessful coup attempt. So the CIA basically extracted him from that situation and his guys. And Haftar's lived in Northern Virginia, uh, interestingly close to Langley, the CIA headquarters, (laughs) for about 20 years with no discernible uh, source of income or job until... Returning to Libya sometime in 2015, I believe. So Not so, at our behest, though. R- right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so starting with that, I mean, you were in government when Heftar went yeah. back and made his return. And there's a great New Yorker piece, yeah. I think, by John Lee Anderson from that yeah. time. What did you make of Heftar? We were worried about him at the time because, you know, he he kind of went back to cleanse Benghazi, the eternal, mm-hmm. you know, the word that has many different meanings, of Islamic militants. But totally kind of extrajudicially, it wasn't through any Libyan government governing structure. It was just a guy basically going and trying to mobilize essentially his own militia to go in and and take out these Islamists. Now, his principal sponsors in this effort were Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. So the the typical cast of characters Mm -hmm. uh, supporting kind of the authoritarian blend of politics in the Middle East. And we were worried about this, and we were always trying to focus with the UN and the Europeans on building out from Tripoli, the capital of Libya, you know, the authority of the Libyan government, mm-hmm. of which you know Haftar's had this kind of complicated relationship. What I said on the pod a couple weeks ago is, you know, there was a policy that the United States government had to oppose Haftar taking his militia and essentially trying to conquer Tripoli and conquer the country, mm-hmm. because the UN supports the governing authority in Tripoli. Haftar is a divisive figure. He's seen as potentially another Gaddafi, just you know another authoritarian. Uh, just like Sisi replaced Mubarak, you could have Haftar as the new Gaddafi. And the U.S. government's position was to support the United Nations and to support the you know government in Tripoli and to oppose Haftar coming in and essentially escalating a civil war in the country. And what I said on the pod, I think, is I, I hope Trump doesn't pay attention to this yeah. because if yeah. he does, he's going to end up siding with Haftar. And it, what happened is, by all reports, Sisi, the Egyptian strongman, comes to the White House and he says to Trump, hey, you should really be back in Haftar. You know, uh, he's our guy in Libya. And then Mohammed bin Zayed, the leader of the UAE, calls Trump and says, yeah, you should be calling and backing Haftar. Trump calls Haftar, right? His own government, his own State Department. Calls a warlord. Like, this is crazy. Imagine calling down the sit room and you're like, hey, get me that Libyan warlord on the line. This is one of these things that, like, if we weren't living in authoritarian dystopia, should be a much bigger fucking story. Because you have the President (laughs) of the United States calling a warlord that his own State Department has urged not to do something and pledging his support. And this is so fucking crazy that the United States was backing a UN Security Council resolution that was in opposition to Haftar and in support of the Libyan government and now he's telling his own government to do a 180 and veto that resolution. And we are essentially sponsoring a warlord who's trying to conquer the country because Donald Trump's fucking p- 
paymasters in the Gulf and in Egypt, yeah. the dictators that he cares more about <clears throat> than the Europeans. You know, think we have these democratic allies in Europe who put a lot of time and, and money into Libya. We've got the United Nations all saying this is bad. This could escalate an already difficult situation. This could precipitate civil war or a, a full dictatorship. And Donald Trump looks at that and says, okay, I better call the Saudis and the Emiratis and figure out which side to be right. on. And now he's on the side of the world. And we, I should say, even Lindsey Graham has gone public with his concern about Trump's call to Haftar. In the last three weeks, the situation has descended into chaos. Hundreds have died. Tens of thousands have been forced out of their homes because Haftar probably told Trump, oh, I'm just going to fight the terrorists. They're all I'll terrorists. do your work They're for all you. Right. Yeah. I mean, Donald Trump is the easiest info op victim in yeah. history because the other thing that apparently happened when Sisi, the president of Egypt, was in D.C., was he asked Trump to designate the Muslim Brotherhood as a foreign terrorist organization. So that would be a, a huge deal. It would mean sanctions on companies that do business in one of the biggest Islamist parties in the region. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. In 2012, Mohamed Morsi won Egypt's presidential election as the Muslim Brotherhood candidate. No surprise, the man who led a coup against him, General Sisi, is the one pushing Trump to designate the MB as a terrorist organization. So, I mean, Ben, can you give a quick overview of like, what, what is the Muslim Brotherhood and what do you think the ramifications of this decision would be? So, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood is a kind of pan-Islamic group, right? So they're, they're in many different countries. And in many different countries, they are the largest opposition group to some of the dictatorships we've talked right, about. Right. And, and look, I, I do not sign on to, I do not ascribe to the views of the Muslim Brotherhood, despite what, you know, yeah, like Tom right Cotton or say. someone would say, yeah. But, you know, because they are, some of their views are, are you know, can veer into kind of undemocratic, you know, uh, zero-sum views of politics, uh, not respect for minority religions. But it's a varied picture. So, like in Tunisia, the Muslim Brotherhood is in the government, right. um, the Nada Party, and has actually acted very responsibly in not seeking to take over power and making uh, agreements with the secular parties and supporting the transition to democracy. Uh, in Egypt, obviously, there was they were removed from power and there was this crackdown. But the, the point is, is that, number one, they're not a terrorist organization. I mean, they're, they're just – these guys have been trying to make them the same thing as al-Qaeda, and they're not. They're Islamists, yes, but, but there's a – if you can't draw a distinction between al-Qaeda and the Muslim Brotherhood, you are painting – Tens of millions of Muslims as terrorists. You know, there, there's broad popular support for the Muslim Brotherhood in a lot of these countries. And if we're saying we treat you the same way we treat Al Qaeda, right? I mean, Mohammed Morsi won with like 52 percent. Yeah, we're, we're we're essentially turning into terrorists a lot of people who are not, and frankly, in, in a sick way, incentivizing them to say, well, if you're seeing us that way, you know, um, maybe we'll radical radicalize. The other thing that we're doing is we are giving carte blanche to the potential violent crackdown on these movements in these different countries. And again, whatever you think of the Muslim Brotherhood, the tactics, you know, the, the, whether it's the mass executions and crucifixions that we saw in Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. the killing of hundreds of protesters in Egypt, do we want to essentially be validating an authoritarian worldview that, that treats people who, you know, are with some of these Islamist parties all as terrorists? and just giving a blank check for whatever repression they want to engage in, right. that too is deeply counterproductive. And by the way, aligning the United States with 
the worst forms of repression in the Middle East, which in the long run is not the way to fight terrorism. Right. I mean, that's the thread that links Haftar and this MB designation, yes. everything else, right? Is it these strong men tactics and the strong men authoritarians we've supported in the past have led to more terrorism, not less. And yeah. we need to learn that lesson. And if you look at what we are currently associated with, and I'll be the first to acknowledge that the Obama administration wrestled with and got things right and wrong in the context of the Arab Spring. But if you look at what we're currently associated with under Trump, a war in Yemen that has put millions of lives at risk, right? This brutal escalation of potential civil war in Libya, crackdowns against even nonviolent Islamists in whatever Middle Eastern country that has a Muslim Brotherhood presence. You know, this isn't going to have long-term repercussions for our security. It's going to make the potential long-term terrorist threat worse, not better. And the only reason Trump is doing this is a mix of his domestic politics that's demonized Muslims and his fealty to these dictators uh, in the Gulf and in Egypt. And it's just astonishing. And, and it's one of these things where you have to step back and not normalize Trump that this guy will literally not take the advice of like an Angela Merkel or an Emmanuel Macron or Justin Trudeau on anything. But if it's a dictator who's telling mm-hmm. him what to do, he's like, oh, yeah, we're there. All we're, we're, we're all in. And that's not a way in which the U.S. president has ever operated no. in the history of our country. We've had – yeah, we've had bad trade-offs at times. and But to just uniformly pick the side of, of autocrats over allies like this – and to kind of just toss human rights overboard. It's also ironic we're talking about this right after talking about Venezuela. Because mm-hmm. what the fuck does it do to our credibility? In Latin, we're sitting there in Latin America right. talking about democracy while we're backing a warlord in Libya and, and like crackdowns <laughs> across the Middle East. It, it, it seems a little bit cynical. Yeah, I, uh, I'll take your point there. Okay, when we come back, we are going to talk about a Russian military-equipped beluga whale. Stick around. We really are. We're actually going to talk about that. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, Ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. 
Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Ben, this is my favorite story of the week. I'm this up because okay. it's so good I need to look at the whale. I have a picture of the I whale. love the whale. It's yeah. so cute. Fishermen in Norway spotted a beluga whale, a baby beluga, wearing a Russian-made harness that had been mounted, I guess, for a GoPro camera. Yeah. Marine experts think it was probably trained by the Russian military. They've been known to use beluga whales. I think they put out an ad one time for dolphins for naval missions. I'm yeah. not kidding here. So... First, let's wildly speculate on what this beluga whale might be doing. And then I think there is a more serious point and reminder that Norway, Sweden, Finland, they deal with basically a constant Russian military or naval presence and harassment uh, from submarines in your Stockholm or, or what have you, I guess now whales. But I mean, so the experts in this piece think that they might... I guess use them for reconnaissance, surveillance, to help divers, to find equipment. Like, have you ever heard anything like this before? I mean, in like a bond movie or or like a satire of a bond moving and and look this is a pretty cute guy yeah he's a happy little whale we'll we'll tweet out some photos you know uh, baby i know he just wants that that stupid harness off his head so uh let's just pause it the beluga (laughs) whales are cute they're so cute great ones at the chicago aquarium by the way but (laughs) but i will say that what we've seen is that uh, you know and i don't think it reveals anything you know the russians are willing to use just about anything and I actually think that part of this, and like, I don't know, I can't get in the head of whatever FSB officer strapped the camera and fucking GoPro <laughs> on the Beluga <laughs> guy. But like, some of this is like they want to surveil all these, you know, coastlines yeah. and where their naval assets right. are NATO. But some of this is fucking trolling. You know? Yeah, they're it's probably like, right. It may just be like, yeah, we're going to send some Belugas out there with some GoPros <laughs> just to remind you guys that like we're up in your shit, you know? Um, but like, like, I mean, where are we in fucking 2019? Like, where the fuck are we? We had, Look, we had the Russians interfering in our election and, and like, a, a Russian asset in the White House and a beluga whale, like, coming up to Norway. Like, we got to get our shit together. I will never West, work in government man. again. I'll never have access to intelligence again. If someone could just leak to me what the Russians are doing with the belugas, I would be super interested. I mean that to the Russians, not the Americans listening, because that would be illegal. Don't he was that. reportedly affectionate. <laughs> That's what they yeah, said. Yeah. He just wanted the harness off. He just off. wanted someone to pat his, you know, beluga head. Yeah, give him a fish. Help him out. Okay, some good news. We got good news. Yeah, uh, yeah beluga thing is cuts both ways. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, I do love whales. So the New York Times, they have a headline. 
right now up on their site that says Spain's election gives a lift to the left and a warning to the far right. So they just had a big election. I guess 76% of the country turned out, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. Literally would solve all our problems here in the U.S. if we could do that. A far-right anti-immigrant party called Vox gained some seats in parliament, so that's bad. But their emergence also mobilized the moderate left. So it does seem like big picture, this is a good data point and gives us some hope that we can stop these far-right populist parties. Yeah. Yeah, we're on a roll, man. I mean, uh, the world owes in Spain, yeah. like represented. I mean, I, I, because I, we talked about this after I was in Spain. People were freaked out about Vox and Steve Bannon was down there. Steve Bannon was helping, like you know, another big win for Steve Bannon here. He got his ass kicked uh, in Spain because essentially what happened is the center right party said that they would not make a coalition with the center left party with the socialists. They would with Vox, and so everybody started to think, "Oh my God." We're going to end up with a coalition that has these kind of Spanish Nazis in, in power and, you know, really hardline anti-immigrant, uh, wanted to take away the autonomy for all of Spain's different regions, so kind of nationalist view of politics. And instead of succumbing to that wave, Spanish voters turned out in much higher numbers than usual to reject that and to give a big victory to the left of center. And And I think it does show that People are being mobilized in opposition to these far-right movements and that, that center-left politicians can tap into that energy and win elections. And we've now seen this and talked about it on this pod, you know, these glimmers of hope, uh, you know, in Turkey, in the local elections, in, in Slovakia, where a, a dynamic woman who rejected populism was elected, now in Spain, a, a major European country rejecting the far-right. I think we are seeing voters look squarely at the danger of this far-right politics look squarely into the, the racist heart of Steve Bannon's worldview and, and the toxic mix of anti-immigrant, anti-Europe, nationalist brand of politics, and reject it. And if we carry this forward through our election and, and some of the other European elections coming up, we can beat back this tide. So I think this is really good news out of Spain, a place where, by the way, they, where there, there are a lot of problems. There's yeah. a lot of unemployment. There's this uh, potential you know, the, the conflict over Catalonia and whether they, they break away or not. And that the fact that even with all these problems, like a, the, the environment was ripe for a right-wing populist party mm-hmm. to exploit it. When given the choice, Spanish voters rejected it. I think that says that you can beat these people anywhere. That's really good. Okay. So Carol Rosenberg is this fantastic reporter who has been covering Gitmo for, I think, since it was created. She's a big feature in the New York Times this week about how the Pentagon... 17 years after opening Gitmo, uh, is now planning for the prisoners there to essentially grow old and die there. They're planning for like palliative care, end of life care. Yeah. So, I mean, the military commission's process that's allegedly supposed to be happening there is still a disaster. The trials are barely proceeding. It costs hundreds of millions of dollars to keep the facility open. I mean, I know that there are some truly heinous, awful people in Gitmo that deserve to die in a jail, but it is hard to think of a bigger waste of money than Gitmo. And it's hard to think of a more complete failure to uphold the standards of justice that we claim to believe in as Americans than the process and what we see happening in this facility. Yeah. I mean, this disappeared, you know, when Obama left uh, because, because, you know, Trump said he was going to keep it open. But the absurd Gitmo does stand for something. It stands for the complete moral and strategic failure of the United States after 9-11, that, that we opened up this legal black hole where we really brutally tortured people. And 
then Barack Obama, everybody kind of figures that out. Even John McCain's for closing Gitmo in the 2008 campaign. Barack Obama comes in, and because he wants to close it, Congress says, no, we, we won't allow you to move any of these people to the United States. I want – there's like 40 guys left in Gitmo. It costs – I think the estimate is $10 million a year to keep each one of them there. That seems like a good use of money. It, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars have been requested to upgrade this prison, to literally be building hospice care down there. They've been asked for plans that project out to when – Gitmo detainees will be 96 years yeah. old down there. Yeah. I mean, that's this the pace is of the trial. Yeah. Th- yeah, this is like a window into a country that that just got something really wrong. This is like and Kafka-esque dystopian it, it, hell. It really is. And, and, and there's another article that people want to kind of get more angry. The New Yorker had an article by Ben Taub a couple of weeks ago, like a week ago, called Guantanamo's Darkest Secret. And it's about this guy that we kept there that we just, and it details the torture. I mean, just the brutal, cruel, physical torture, psychological torture, abuse, sleep deprivation, heavy metal music blasting constantly, you know, force feeding, trashing the Quran, women undressing, you know, around, you know, to make him feel bad. And it turns out that this guy didn't even do anything. Like he, we had the wrong, or we, we were wrong about him. He wasn't the terrorist guy. Jesus. And now he's released and he's living in, in Mauritius, you know? And so some of these people were the wrong people. Yeah. I mean, you know, everybody says, you know, the caveat that they're bad guys down there. And there's some terrible guys like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who, who was responsible for 9-11 tax. But we just – this also details – a lot of people ended up in Gitmo. We went to Afghanistan and we're like, hey, if there's an al-Qaeda guy, we'll pay you a bunch of money. And so a bunch of people were like, sure, I'll finger, you know, this guy. And so a lot of these people who ended up there – we're there because somebody in Afghanistan wanted the, a payoff from us when we yeah. went in. And, and you know, I'll get all the incoming from the right. I don't understand how dangerous people are. The dangerous ones we can put in a fucking prison in the United States. Yeah, yeah. And, and by the way, some of these guys are old and, and sick. It's, they're not going to bust out. It's not going to be like escape from Alcatraz with a bunch <laughs> of 80-year-old jihadists like digging a fucking tunnel. Well, the five Taliban guys we sent back as part of the Bo Bergdahl deal that was treated like they were going to – Rambo was going to be back on the battlefield are now negotiating a peace agreement, which is, you know, uh, like – to your point, this is complicated. There's some very bad people. There. I don't think we ever justifies torture. But ever, I'll, ever, I'll, and, ever. And here's the honest truth: like the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and I assume the Trump administration has released people who are more dangerous than most of the people mm-hmm. at Gitmo. When we ended the war in Iraq, when we closed Bagram, people we picked up on the battlefield had to be released. Right? If somebody is a terrorist mastermind, then you should be able to convict that person and put them away for life in a in a supermax prison in the United States. Which, by the way, at this point today, is a far worse place to be than, than Gitmo. Mm-hmm. Um, because we're not, obviously, Obama ended all the tactics I talked about, all the, all the torture. Why on earth we are spending hundreds of millions of dollars to keep open a symbol for the America's torture of people after 9-11 just because people like fucking Lindsey Graham didn't want Barack Obama to have an achievement it says something really disgusting about yeah. our politics. It's common sense. I mean, you worked on this government, government, right? it's, like, It was the most infuriating 180 I've ever seen. And, and the Democratic Party. Let's not excuse yeah, we the hit, Democratic we Party. Duck and These cover. fucking people in Congress who just duck and cover, you know, I don't, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to vote to prevent Obama from having the, the capacity to, because I can then go tell people I'm, I'm tough on terrorism. Like, what's so tough about, like, paying $10 million a year to have some geriatric case 
down in Cuba instead of in a supermax prison. <laughs> I know. That's not tough. That's fucking stupid. We're right? very, very and, stupid. And, and we're like, uh, like somehow we've talked ourselves into this, this insanity here. It's also one of the places where I feel like the reporting on it has abandoned all common sense as well. Like Carol Rosenberg is completely different. She's been on this beat forever. But the Washington conventional wisdom on Gitmo being some horrible political decision was just ridiculous. It was a, it was a symbol that was helping al-Qaeda recruit. It should have been shut. Yeah. Last thing I want to read for you. So Dexter Filkins, great reporter, The New Yorker, has this long piece on John Bolton that came out this week that's pretty interesting. I just want to read you a passage from that. The Trump administration has persistently spoken out against Iran, but it has also made scattershot efforts at diplomacy. A senior Iranian official told me that in 2017, Trump sent eight requests to meet with the Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani. Quote, Trump invited President Rouhani to dinner, the official told me. (laughs) Rouhani is one dinner away from getting the North Korea treatment. And yet both, this is the animated... (laughs) I mean, like, what the fuck, man? You, you fucking kidding me? That's like, in the piece. Eight, eight requests. I haven't read this yet. That, that's, you come on. Nope, nope. And there's, there's, there's even more details about additional context for business. So, what is he going to get a, a fucking couple's massage as a supreme leader <laughs> while he's at it? Like, what? Like these guys, this is, here's the thing. Here's what people Take need the to dinner. Know. They, these people think you're stupid. Yes. They think you're dumb. Yeah. Like they think that they can simultaneously just stack up sanctions and talk about how much tougher they are than Obama, having no impact on it. But then Trump's ego is stroked when there are a lot of TV cameras when he meets with like like dictators like Kim Jong-un. And so he's going to like sit there with Rouhani and say he's making peace at the same time that they're sanctioning him so that they can tell slices of voters across the United States that they're sanctioning him. They're tougher than Obama. And he can call up his account manager in Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. And like none of this is on the level. None of it is on the this level. Like, and, and I'd say I, I hope Rouhani takes a dinner. It, it would be great. I got filleted by the right wing troll farms for three years for referring to Hassan Rouhani as a moderate. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Imagine if I invite him to fucking dinner eight times, like what they'd be doing. Like we'd have, you know, a, a, a parade of, of uh, you know, troll, the trolls from Free Beacon and <laughs> Breitbart coming into the studio right now to like point iPhone cameras at me and be like, how come you invited Hassan Rouhani to dinner? Muslim Brotherhood. Mark, Mark Dubowitz like, yeah. would poison you. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and then a bunch of earnest Democratic blob types would be like, "Well, of course we must get must tougher on Hassan Rouhani." Blah 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 blah. But maybe the Iran deal's okay. But then, like fucking Donald Trump is gonna like sit there and have like take out uh, Chinese with the guy. At the you know. I'm so glad you hadn't read that, Ben. That's all I got for the show. Play us out. Russians are Russians, man. Like they, the, at least the Russians have a sense of humor sometimes. Yeah, at least know? they're crafty. Like, I mean, you guys have seen blugas and the, they're in like the aquarium. The so they're, they're smiling all. They look like they're smiling. Happy. You guys seen Finding Dory? I mean, <laughs> like, was that was Destiny and Dory like a fucking Russian agent though? <laughs> like, this is going to change the viewing habits that I have with my daughter, uh. who's watched Finding Dory seventy seven times. I now now we know that actually the way in which Destiny was able to take the truck down in Dory. Is because she was Russian trained. When we come back, Washington Post, <laughs> Beirut Bureau Chief, Liz Sly. Picture this. You're on a John Deere compact tractor, enjoying the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. You just have to get in the seat. 
Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. On the line is Liz Sly. She's the Washington Post Beirut Bureau Chief dialing in uh, at 10 o'clock Lebanon time. Liz, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you for having me. I'm a longtime reader of basically everything you ever write, so I really appreciate it. So ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi appeared on video this week for the first time in five years. Uh, His only other video appearance was at the Great Mosque of al-Nuri in Mosul in 2014 when he declared the caliphate. We know that this video was filmed in April because he mentioned several recent events. What do you think it says about the state of ISIS that Baghdadi is is not only still alive, but willing to risk coming out of hiding to, to record this? Well, yes, I think this is a really um, a very significant event because, you know, you can kind of dismiss the fact that, okay, he's in hiding now. He was in a mosque and he, he controlled territory when he spoke the first time five years ago. Now he's, you know, obviously in hiding in the desert somewhere. We don't know where he is. He's lost all his territory. But he's shown that, you know, he did survive. He looks to be in great shape. He, he's, he's bulky. He's well gained fed. a lot of weight, um, even fat, yes. Um, <laughs> um, somehow all his, you know, fighters and children were starving in, in, the, in the Islamic State's last holdout. But he seems to have been eating quite well. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of, you know, poking the eye to the world. You, um, okay, you got up, you know, you took our territory away, but we're still here. It was a very business-like message in some ways. He, he didn't ramble on too much about sort of history and make big boasts. He said, he said this is going to be a long battle. Um, and he used most of the time to kind of show off, if you like, or boast about all the affiliates he's gained, all the people around the world who have, who have pledged allegiance to him over the past couple of years or so, you know, in countries like Mali, the Philippines, um, most recently Sri Lanka, of course, Nigeria. Mm-hmm. He kind of rattled them all off. And the message seemed to be, OK, don't let's mention that caliphate thing too much that, you know, we just lost. But, you know, we are now a global presence. We're a global franchise and lots of people um, adhere to me. And I'm here. I'm, I'm still running the show. And, yeah, it, 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 we carry on. The, you know, the Islamic State continues. Yeah. When you talk to military or intelligence analysts, how much physical risk or operational security risk do, do they think releasing a video like this creates for Baghdadi? I mean, I know ultimately couriers led to the demise of Osama bin Laden, but it, I, it was never clear to me how much intelligence agencies can learn from these videos themselves or the timing. I don't know how much intelligence can be gleaned from the video itself. People, you know, people have poured over it. He's speaking against a blank white wall. People have noticed that the shadow is suggested. 
it, it, it's some kind of fabric. So people said maybe he's in a tent, but then of course he could have put the fabric up against the wall to disguise something, who knows what, or just to make it look clean and white. People have um, speculated about the floral covering of the cushion and people have said that they have seen that floral covering covering in markets in Syria. But, you know, we know a lot of Islamic State people have crisscrossed the border there mm-hmm. and I don't think we can prove that you can't buy that very same cushion in Iraq. Right. So right. Um, there really isn't very much that to, to be told from, um, from the video itself. But obviously it is a risk. I mean, there is a reason why he hasn't made another video where he didn't make another video after the appearance in the Nori Mosque, um, obviously it was an operational security because doing a video is a good thing. It it says to your um, followers, I'm still here and I'm still watching you. So I think it was brave or bold of him to make a video at this time. The timing was very good from his point of view. And obviously there is an operational risk. I was going to point out, as you just did, that that's exactly how Osama bin Laden was caught, by tracking a courier. I don't know enough about whether this would have all been transmitted electronically. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, the Internet's got a lot better than it was when Osama bin Laden was in his hiding place. But again, the electronic signals obviously are also a danger for him. So, Yeah. yeah, I don't know if we're going to see too many more of them, but I think this isn't the last yeah. It did seem like Baghdadi staged Kalashnikov rifles and, and did some other things for the setting to make it look like past Al-Qaeda videos. Do you think that a Baghdadi video provides the same propaganda lift that, say, uh, an Osama bin Laden video once did? I kind of do, actually, because, I mean, the Islamic State has had inflicted upon it, you know, a major military humiliation. It is no small feat that has been undertaken by um, the fighters on the ground in Iraq and Syria to conquer back all of this territory. Um, Of course, they did it mainly because of U.S. air power, and it wouldn't have happened without the U.S. air power. But they did nonetheless conquer this vast area of territory, and he is saying he's still there. They do seem to have a lot of affiliates around the world now. This this was something that hadn't really been predicted. It was, you know, I think some of the experts had thought that their um, loss of territory would take the shine off their brand name, that People would be like, oh, those guys can't fulfill what they're talking about. Um, They made all these boasts. And so, yeah, to see him sitting there so relaxed with with this very symbolic gun next to him does create this impression, I think, of a leader who is in control, that there is an identity to the leadership, that it it exists, it's there, it's with them. Yeah. Your report in the Washington Post mentioned that the video included a separate audio-only message about the Easter attack in in Sri Lanka. Baghdadi claimed the attack was in response to fighting in Syria and not a response to the New Zealand mosque shooting as the Sri Lankan government has claimed. What did you make of that discrepancy? Well, his comments on um, Sri Lanka are interesting. First of all, they were added in an audio later. So I think we can pretty much time that video to between April the 11th um, the event he mentioned in um, the Sudan, the coup in Sudan, um, and the April 22nd Easter Day attacks in Sri Lanka. The video was taken in that time frame. He had to add on the audio about Sri Lanka after that. Now, what he said about Sri Lanka was interesting on two counts. First of all, yes, he's, he, he very clearly said that it was um, retaliation for the loss of the fighters who were killed in Bagus, which was the last battle that the Islamic State fought, where they finally lost all of their territory. And yeah, I think on the part of the Sri Lankan government, it was pure speculation that it was vengeance for the New Zealand mosque attacks, because 
the Islamic State doesn't really need an excuse like that to do it. It, it. It's keeping it in the family. It's saying, you know, we are avenging our own guys, but we're not sort of involved with that other stuff over there. Mm-hmm. And the other reason it was quite interesting was that he didn't claim that the Islamic State Central or he had had anything to do with the Sri Lankan attacks. He thanked very much the group in Sri Lanka that carried out the attacks for pledging allegiance to him, but made it clear that it it had been something they had done. He congratulated mm-hmm. them for choosing the targets for encouraged them to continue their work. But he seemed to be saying, you know, um, it, this was their deal. This was their thing. Um, they did it and we and, and we appreciate it very much. But he wasn't claiming an operational role in any way at all. Yeah. When you look out at the globe and in the many places ISIS is attempting to recruit and launch new attacks, is there anywhere outside of the Middle East that really worries you and you think that people should be focusing on or, or you know, mindful of? Well, in some ways, other parts of the world are more worrying. Now, I don't cover other parts of the world as closely as I covered the Middle East. I'm very worried about the prospect of an Islamic State revival in Iraq. It's already coming back in quite a strong way in certain areas of the country, mostly ones that were actually liberated from ISIS up to five years ago. Um, they've been, it, it's taken them a while to get back there, but they are coming back. Um, in Syria, they've suffered a very recent defeat. Um, it's places like Sri Lanka where a group was apparently able to carry out this spectacular and incredibly devastating attack without having been noticed or spotted. And places like the Philippines, where it seems they control islands, mm-hmm. um, remote islands, they are sort of taking territory in other countries around the world that have a Muslim non-Muslim divide. And yes, I mean, it's a very important point about them that they're sort of piggybacking onto a lot of local Islamic causes around the world. And that gives them a much bigger platform than they might otherwise have in the Middle East where they come from and where they have suffered a significant defeat. Yeah, that's true. They're co-executive producing a lot of things that they're actually not doing any work on. Last question for you. The last time I paid really close attention to Lebanon was when Saad Hariri, the prime minister, was briefly detained or imprisoned, however you want to call it, in Saudi Arabia, forced to film a resignation speech, and then I guess just kind of walked it back. Have people just moved on from that episode in Lebanon? They kind of have. Um, It was handled um, quite well from the Lebanese government's point of view by the politicians here because they stood by Hariri. Um, They said they didn't believe that he had been, um, he had actually made this resignation, that he had been forced to do this. And they sort of welcomed him back as a victim of Saudi excesses. And he is now continuing in his job as prime minister at the behest of the Hezbollah alliance here, um, which has affirmed its role in Lebanon um, and the dominance of its role in Lebanon, partly as a result of that ham-fisted attempt to roll back Hezbollah's influence. Yeah. Liz Sly, thank you so much for the reporting you're doing, for joining the show today and helping us understand this horrible asshole's new music video. It is unfortunate to see him out there and still alive, but time will tell. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Ben, that was a very fun episode for <laughs> yeah, me. I, don't, I, really, I don't know why this was such a fun episode. I, we got belugas. Right, the belugas. In we belugas, got good news in yeah. Spain. Yeah. I feel we good. Got, we get some good news. I'm glad I stayed up till 11 to get through the whole Dexter Filkins article because, boy, that was worth it. Talk to you guys next week. See you <laughs> next week.
Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.